everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, in our last couple of episodes, we did an interview with Linda Fight, which was wonderful. But prior to that, we were reviewing episodes, or excuse me, issue numbers 47 and 48 of Avengers, which is a three-part Magneto story that Roy Thomas told in 1968. Uh, Magneto and Toad made it back to Earth from the Strangers world, and they heard that Pietro and Wanda had joined the Avengers and were very unhappy. So Magneto kidnapped them both and is determined to reform the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Uh, Meanwhile, the Avengers are at their weakest ever with only Hawkeye, Wasp, and Goliath left in their ranks. So today we'll be wrapping up that storyline and I am super honored to be joined uh, by my good friend, Connor Goldsmith. Connor, thank you for coming back from Cerebrocast. How are you? Hi, Chad. It's just Cerebro. It's like Pixies. Like it's not the Pixies. I do it's, it it's not your time. fault. It's because it's no, it's because it's <laughs> cerebrocast.com. So I did this to myself, but it's because Cerebro was taken. Um, but yes, no, from Cerebro. Hi, Chad. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be back and great to be here with your other guest who is a legend. So yes, uh, and I, I will give a small preamble here. I grew up reading comics. I've shared with my podcast before. Comics were my refuge from a kind of a difficult childhood. And not only did I start in the early 90s, but I started picking up back issues just by the drove. And one of my favorite runs of comic books of all time is Andesenti's work on Daredevil, which was so transformative to me. Uh, Annie has also been the editor for the X-Men line for many years and helped craft so many of the stories that we know and that are so beloved. So I consider this such a personal honor to meet with one of my personal comic book heroes, uh, Miss Annie Nesenti. Hi, Annie. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me here. I'm so happy to have you. We've been chatting for a couple of months uh, and I I am so glad we were able to get you on. This is such a tremendous honor for me to have you here. Thank you. So uh, give people a little bit of a preamble to kind of your history with Marvel Comics, if you will. And then I've prepared some questions today. You get interviewed quite often and I I know you're legendary, frankly. So I prepared some questions today that hopefully will surprise you and surprise some of our listeners that are going to come around the bend by exploring the X-Men, but from a different perspective today. I just want to say- I was just talking about, oops. I was just going to say real quick that I love the new Electra story that you just thought it was great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, what did you like about it? It was just exciting to see you back in that world, honestly. Like, I just really enjoyed it. It felt very, because I love that Daredevil run also. And there was just something really cool about, like, here we are. We're in Hell's Kitchen. We're doing all this stuff. We're in this issue. And one of these stories, I mean, just to see you tackling some of these characters again is exciting to me. I would love well, to see. It was it was interesting because, it you know, I decided to go down the, explore her mental illness Mm -hmm. thing and then also connecting it with this kind of like a subtext of women defining themselves by men yeah and i thought this was a good place to kind of do a little bit of ribbing on that because you know electra's been wearing daredevil's costume Mm -hmm. and i have uh typhoid literally braids her hair into devil horns and dyes her hair red as a way of like sort of saying, come on, ladies, you always define yourself by your boyfriends, you know? Right. Is it really so- graduating to take your boyfriend's identity? Which I, I love the story they're telling right now, but it's a question worth posing. And Typhoid's exactly the right person to pose it in the annals of Daredevil history, right? Well, it's fun because, I mean, I love Chip's work. Chip and um, the artist, 
Mark, right? Marco. Marco. Yeah, Marco. I love what they're doing because to prep for this story, I read like, you know, the whole run. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was, I just love everything they're doing. There's a lot of really exciting, like the dark Hell's Kitchen stories. And, but it is funny. I did the same thing. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if you want to talk about at what point, you know, if you want to talk about feminist issues, I did the exact same thing years ago had typhoid defining herself by daredevil or through daredevil. And so it was interesting. I I couldn't resist. Let me put it that way. I couldn't resist ribbing both of those women for being too obsessed with daredevil. And that's what I loved about it most was that it just had, I think of your daredevil run. It's very serious in a lot of ways and it gets a lot of really very real political issues pretty daring for the time I have there were people in my discord server for my podcast who were reading it recently who hadn't read it before because some of it's been collected in a nice way recently and um they were like wow I can't believe she got away with some of this stuff because it's pretty daring but the sense of humor of it is always something that sticks with me there's a sort of it's very New York in that way right it's like well life is shit but we're gonna laugh about it because we have to yeah we have to you know, and so that kind of ribbing that you do of the characters always feels very loving, but also corrective to me in a fun way. So I like, you know, and Sid, um, I don't know how to say his last name, Cotien or Coten, Sid, the artist. I, I say a Cotien in my brain. I'm not sure if that's right. Cotien, I think, I mean, I, he brought like this kind of tough, scrappy, I love how like they look like they're ready for WrestleMania, the typhoid mm-hmm. and Electra. He made them really look like women that can fight, you know. So I loved that. And it was just very um, you know, and there's like little things that girls talk about that they don't like. I, I made sure typhoid had a few lines where you realize. Yeah, I'm not so sure about this marriage to Kingpin thing, you know, (laughs) going with it. I'm going with it. But like just between you and me, you know, (laughs) it's kind of (laughs) like I was happy to be able to to put that in. Well, typhoid Mary having second or third or fourth thoughts is very in character for her. (laughs) So I think that it's good to see her in conflict, even though I think her mental state is a little better now than it was in the 80s still. Her being someone with divided loyalties and divided opinions makes a lot of sense to me. Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to. Oh, no, no. It's been a while since I spoke to Annie and I wanted to tell her that it was great to see her back in that world. You're the first person that I've talked to that actually read the story. So I have been (laughs) curious, you know, I mean, how it's going to come off because the whole thing was inspired by um, I was reading about octopuses. And mm-hmm. octopuses apparently have their brain. They're finding out that their brains are these like, like uh, decentralized and each tentacle has a different personality. And one tentacle can be shy and another one can like go on attack mode. And I went, right as I got the assignment. Yeah. And it was like this sort You're of- like, like, I was writing that character almost 40 years ago. <laughs> and well, she wasn't even an octopus. Well, well, <laughs> I just I just like that there's this cutting edge science that might mm-hmm. give a weird 
sociobiological root to the idea of having multiple identities in one entity, even though this is an octopus, which is a completely different thing sure. than a human. I just thought it's like, just sometimes this is how it goes for writers. Like someone calls you and says, you want to write Electra versus Typhoid? And you go, okay. <laughs> and then you're reading about octopuses and you don't even think, you just go, whoa, that works, you know? <laughs> so I ended up going down this whole weird path of like an octo octopi scientist. And I'm sort of wondering if people are going to get that this is real science or are they going to think it's comic book science? I think anytime you're telling a story, you got to go with a particular emotion or energy. Uh, the X-Men, of course, are always grounded in having the story of the outsiders who are rejected, trying to fight for their place. Uh, Daredevil stories are something different. Daredevil is a complex man with a complex moral code and a Catholic background and a huge guilt complex, but he's also got a lot of superiority. He's blind, but has super senses. He uses his superhero identity to beat up criminals and then his uh, lawyer identity to fight for them. And there are, there are key runs on Daredevil over the years. He's one of my all-time favorite characters. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, Chip and Marco's series, I'm like, look at me like I'm on first name basis with them. <laughs> but they're they're great. They're really great. They're I mean, I've, I loved their all their stories. I'm kind of a big uh, Chip fan. He also, he's, he's always great. so funny, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that he brings humor, even if it's pretty sly. But the thing you were just saying about mutants is like, I never read any of these old stories. So you giving me an assignment to read an old story and then you just said, oh, mutants, they're the outsiders. You know, we always think of them, oh, they're the outsiders and they're they're hunted and all that. But then, you know, I completely had forgotten there was the whole superiority thing, mm -hmm. you know, the double-edged sword that keeps coming back. And right now, I mean, you guys are the, I'm not really an expert anymore with the X-Men or the mutants, you guys are, but <laughs> it seems that it's back in the, you know, we're different and we're we're hated because we're different, which was definitely what what Chris Claremont and I were going with mm -hmm. in the 80s. But, you know, to see the 60s or whenever those that the 60s uh, stuff is very weird. It's very <laughs> and it's very like it's like mutants are superior and beauty yeah. humans and kill humans and that really, that kind of narrative is not it, not so much there. But the other thing about that Avengers story is that he's talking about taking them to an island where they can be superior all by right. themselves. Mm -hmm. And it, aren't they doing that now in the well? Comics? So that's yeah. so. This the interesting thing here is that yeah, in this story, the really evil thing that Magneto suggests that he knows they'll never say yes to because it would be too evil is an island nation where this minority group can have self-determination. Yeah. Now, in the current era, the mutants have unilaterally created one without asking, and because they have certain resources, most of the global superpowers have agreed to recognize it. Are they in NATO? They're in the UN, Harry Leland. Oh. Harry Leland is back from the dead and is their representative at the UN. Absolutely, oh, okay. I thought that might tickle you. <laughs> So but, if, it's, um, if it's okay for me to pause this, I want yeah. to have this conversation as part of the issue review because it's such sure. a key moment. Sure, 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 sure. 
Uh, so, so let's we'll pause back. this for a minute and we have a ton to say. So I, I want to focus Anne, on. But your... no, go back to you had actual questions for her. I just like took over your show for a second. So you're great. You're right great. Let's keep things focused on Daredevil for just a minute. So actually, part of what I wanted to do in the interview today, Annie, is you did a lot, a shocking number of not only social justice oriented stories, but frankly, X-Men and mutant stories in your Daredevil run. And a lot of people may have read the books you've edited in X-Men, but a lot of our fans here probably have not read a lot of Daredevil. Uh, just like a lot of modern creators have not read the 60s books, <laughs> which is part yeah. of what the podcast is for. Me. <laughs> uh, so if we if we look at uh, your Daredevil run for just a minute, I'm going to have some key questions. And I didn't prepare these in advance. So if there's one you want to pass on or don't remember clearly, okay. that's completely okay. One of your very first uh, Daredevil issues crossed over with the fall of the mutant story. And you had Sabretooth fighting Daredevil, which is fantastic. Uh, you brought Daredevil into a number of mutant crossovers, the most prominent, I think, being Inferno, uh, yeah. in which we had a, a demonic invasion around the city bringing inanimate objects to life. Yeah. Uh, and Daredevil has uh, several pretty powerful stories through the Inferno line. Yeah, tell but about... also he has some of his stupidest stories. I mean, I can't tell you how many times fans have come up to me and said, you know, like, really, you had Daredevil fight a vacuum cleaner? Like, <laughs> can you imagine doing that story now? Daredevil versus a vacuum cleaner. I get so much grief about that story. and I, I love that story. About... I, I mean, I thought it was fun because it's sort of like um, you also have to remember this was all pre-internet. Like people can't quite comprehend when they're reading a story that's pre-internet. Like now it is it is like uh, the, it's the portal. It's the obsessive, strange, you know, hellish landscape that is the portal that has our stress. But Back then, you know, technology was kind of creepy and like just ordinary technology was creepy. So um, the idea that hell on earth, that in Inferno, hell on earth, that the technology of the day, like going to the dentist and your dentist drill, you know, and what your dentist was up to. Like, so we had different fears back then. And if you, comics are great, um, historically to see what were the stresses of the times. Like a lot of my young friends are completely, um, you know, just really angry at climate change. They're really angry at the, the what they say, the world that we left kids. We've left them like hell. We've left them mm -hmm. in hell. And you know, it's funny, those 80 stories, a lot of them were about thinking the same exact thing. That's this kid, Lance, who was a bullet's son. I was going to bring him up in just a minute. He's terrified the bomb's going to drop. I mean, right. it's sort of my generation. We felt like there was this atomic thing that was going to just any day, like, mutate us all. And it was always so weird because Marvel Comics you know, NDC, you throw someone into a vat of radioactive goop and they get powers. But it was the same time when people were like, wait a minute, you know, radioactive goop is not so good, you know, but we also, the eighties, we had AIDS. Like, so we were right. all kind of like, you know, sex is death, 
atomic war. There was acid rain. There was all kinds of environmental problems. And I remember we, we lived in a kind of like, you know, fuck you, mom and dad, this world you, you, you wrecked for us. So I can very much relate to what's happening now. Um, in that it's it's yet again kids are feeling this sort of doom is about to anyway that's too depressing change the topic <laughs> no no and just to just to tie yeah, and read that. the seeds by Anna Senti and David Aha uh, oh thank you well, yeah I mean I got a lot of that out in the seeds I because I was so obsessed with like and and I found seeds. it very moving it's a we're in a bleak situation yeah and it was an ultimately optimistic story in very bleak circumstances and I I enjoyed it very much well and in fact that that I don't know if like you never know if people even notice stuff in your comics like in that, it was really important to me how animals looked at us. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of shots in there of just like the pig looking at the farm, observing the farmer. Yeah, yeah. like it, are are animals like looking at humans? Like, wait a minute, you know? You guys you fucked up the whole planet. Wow, great, cool. <laughs> and the other weird thing, and and I don't even know if this will come across either. In the Electra story I just did, it opens with. A thing on the news that of uh, climate change and that like uh, tornadoes are going to hit Manhattan, which is tornadoes never hit Manhattan. Right. And then the fight between and this is a little spoilery, but the fight between Electra and Typhoid literally gets cut short because of climate change mm -hmm. and the tornadoes hit. And it's sort of like that was very specific. I wanted to say, you know, we're all in this like internecine warfare and you know right now we are of course are all you know per, you know hoping that you know thinking about ukrainian people and the and the kids yeah. and the women that are getting killed and the you know but it, it's sort of like what i wanted was like here's a fight between electra and typhoid and oh by the way your fight is going to get derailed by climate change wake up you yeah. know and they mm -hmm. literally have to say oops stop fighting so uh, a lot of what makes your run on Daredevil so beloved is John Romita Jr.'s gorgeous pencil. So when we talk about these Inferno issues, part of what makes them so scary with the vacuum and the dentist, although they're silly <laughs> concepts, is how creepy the landscape is. The dentist yeah. in particular, the vacuum's almost cute. <laughs> but but to see that tie-in and Daredevil kind of battling his own humanity is, is really fantastic. One of my favorite things from your whole run on Daredevil, however, is the vulnerable villains that you create. Uh, you mentioned Lance, who is the son of Bullet. Bullet's a single dad who's just taken jobs to make a living, but his kid ends up in danger. He's scared of the apocalypse. Uh, Typhoid Mary is a mutant character who we all probably know who has multiple personalities. She's got the very deadly side and the very sweet placating side. And those themes of feminism and masculinity and how they're defined uh, run their way through your series so gorgeously. Let me ask you about one in particular villain that you created named Bushwhacker. Uh, Bushwhacker, oh, yeah. Bushwhacker is a guy who has arms that can turn into guns, basically. Yeah. Uh, he's running around town with his wife, who's very dependent on him, at least at the beginning of the story. And he is killing mutants. Uh, he's murdering mutants across the city. Uh, while it seems to be believed that Bushwhacker himself might be a mutant. Uh, tell me a little bit about what story you were trying to tell with him. You know, honestly, I, I can't really... Unless I reread the story, it's 
Those are those stories are so old that <laughs> no, I get it. <laughs> I know sometimes when I'm interviewed, I say, well, look, just pick a story and I'll read it so that I'll refresh. The only thing I remember about that is that um, I think that was like that was a Rick Leonardi creation, right? I think that it was the two stories and Bushwhacker. And I think, you know, you never know. I think it was like I loved Rick. Rick and I did three different series that never came out. We did a Batman and a Phoenix. Um, we did we did some work together that just never came out. Um, and we did a Colossus miniseries. And I think we were just, you know, talking about, like, it's very hard to remember who created what when you're yakking with an artist. Now, everything is sort of like, you don't even talk to the artists. They, you don't speak the same language. They live somewhere else. You know, I never, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have the conversations like you used to, but it used to be, you'd go out for a beer first and say, what do you want to draw? Let's talk. And I think the idea in that was something to do with beautiful murders. It was like some ironic, like, wasn't he posing he was, people? Yeah, he was killing artists that were mutants and posing them afterwards. So some very posing. obscure mutant mutant characters, like uh, I think there's a guy named Gerhard who's a mutant composer, and different characters like that. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the logic behind that right now. I can't even imagine what the logic could have been of beautiful murders. It sounds really like, <laughs> you know, and. Um, so I think that was just, you know, j jamming with an artist because those were two fill-ins to give Johnny a break. But I do remember like certain things. Like I remember Johnny came in the office once and said, I saw this guy on the street, you know, can he be our next villain? And I think his name was Shotgun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so Johnny came in with that as a full-blown idea. He designed it and he presented it to me and he said... And this is what I want the guy to do. And, you know, so, it, you know, that shotgun was basically a, a Johnny Ramita Jr. creation. You know, he came up with all that. And um, I, like typhoid was based on, you know, something, a story I wanted to tell, but it was based also on someone Johnny knew. So there's often like some kind of weird, um, uh, what do you want? Telepathy going on like an alchemy like, of the two yeah creators. the two like i like sometimes when i'm talking to david aha you know i think the character lead character is astra is a journalist and a lot of astra comes from my years as a journalist and mm -hmm. the compromises and stories and the you know the all, everything trying to sell and you know all the like different and and david sometimes will go but i'm astra you know, I, mean, I remember when I was talking to you about it when you were on my show. Uh, Annie came on to talk about Mojo. Yeah, Surrey. it's a great People episode. I haven't heard that one. It's episode, uh, God, 32, I think. I think it's episode 32. Um, but I mentioned that I thought it was cool that very casually in that story, 
Astra looks at a picture of her ex and you realize that Astra's a lesbian and it's not mentioned anywhere in the story. And you said, oh yeah, David just decided to draw a girl. So she's a lesbian. That wasn't in my script. You're like, that's no, one not of those, at all. <laughs> but that's one of those <laughs> funny things where. And I guess because you gave David... him the freedom to do that. And to oh, me, yeah. it made something about the story very interesting as a gay reader that I wouldn't have pinged on to. Other, you know, it's just one of those things where having well, you know, a writer and an artist working together can do stuff like that. Yeah, he he wanted to do that, but he and he's like, but she, but Astor wears my my parka. That's the parka I wear. So obviously, <laughs> Astor's me. And I'm like, but you know, she's a journalist, and I'm a journalist. And he's like, oh no, I I see Astor as me. So I thought that was really cute that both David and I see the lead character mm-hmm. as ourselves. Funny thing you should mention Mojo is because. I remember we had a funny conversation about Mojo's relationship with Major Domo. With the Major Domo, yeah. So I'm about, I just did a two-part story. I'm so where, excited for that. I can't even tell you. I thought of you because I was like, <laughs> I have them like, you know, watching a movie together. And I oh, almost wrote I love that. that, you know, they're holding hands. And I was sort of like, hmm, how far are they going to let me go with this, you know? You never know. Mystique and Destiny are married now. So it's a new world. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, Annie, you may not have an answer to this question, but just kind of concluding the Bushwhacker conversation, there seemed to be an element, and this was written during a time period when a lot of people who hated themselves for being something, for example, self-hating gay people, would attack other gay people. And I wondered if there was almost an element of that in the Bushwhacker story where we have a mutant character potentially who hates himself for being mutant. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think that that's valid. That's a valid read on it. And and like I said, I'd have to dig it out and read it again. And then, you know, because so much of what you do in comics is subtext. You know, it's like the electrotyphoid story is in a weird way, a climate change story and probably no one will notice, <laughs> you know? And, you know, when I'm, it, it, but that's what it is. It's a climate change story. It's like, it, it, it's designed so that the shenanigans that everyone is up to fighting each other are rendered pointless if the earth were killing the earth. So I would literally be, so my answer to that is because so much is subtext. It's it you know I, I would have to reread the story and figure out if yes that's what I was thinking or not. But it's hard to recall because you don't want to state anything too heavy-handed in a story. You, you know? also you also told a story about the Mutant Registration Act in your Daredevil run, and uh, again I didn't I didn't give you time to prep, but. There yeah. are. This was during a time when the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants was operating as Freedom Force. They were government agents, and they were being sent to round up mutants who hadn't registered. Uh, and you oh, told yeah. one part story about a young girl named uh, I. I, I got to look up her name now. Uh, Amanda Fallows, who is a young telekinetic girl, and Blob and Pyro come into town are just extra predatory, oh. and they're sanctioned by the government to grab this yeah. girl. And Daredevil <laughs> saves her, of course. Uh, but it was a really powerful story, and. I, I recently read the Blob's whole history, and this is one of like three stories where he's just at his worst. He's so predatory yeah. and so creepy. Uh, any memories you want to share based on that story? I mean, I don't, I don't remember the, the I don't I don't remember the mutant. I think I was it was like um, I, I think Johnny and I because like it's very hard because you got to remember it, you know this could have been Johnny's idea. I think we just wanted to do a good old 
old-fashioned bar brawl. Sure, yeah. You know, because we just wanted to have fun in a bar. And also, it was, doesn't it open with the torch? Yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Does it open with the torch? Yeah, uh, I think so. With either the, the torch or pyro. I'd have to look at the first page again. But I, I remember think, the fire. I think it's maybe the torch, because I remember at the time thinking, um, what would it be like to suddenly turn into fire? And so I think there was like, I made a big deal about how it would probably be like, I tried to get into his head, like that it must hurt for a little while for him to flame on, Yeah, you know? It's so he's always so cocky flame on, but it's actually painful. So I fool around with that a little bit. I remember it's just this, what is, why, why is Johnny so cocky? You know, why is he just such a dude, you know? So I think I played a little bit with that. And then it ended just the whole thing just ended up as a big bar brawl, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a great, great story. And you work in so many guest stars tiered out of Oranis too. There's Ultron and there's the Inhumans, and uh there's a delightfully hairy chested Gorgon <laughs> a couple of issues. Oh, you know, that's it's it's funny. <laughs> the um uh, well, Harry Chesco in and out of favor. You know, I think this was the days when Burt Reynolds was doing like Playboy centerfolds and, you know, so men were being drawn like with hair suits, you know, but I think that that goes in and out of favor. But the, um, the thing I was going to say about the that's another story that I get grief for, because I do believe I had Daredevil uh, beat Ultron with a stick. You know, he he just whacks him with a stick and beats think, yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. I mean, it's when you read the story, slightly, it's, it's like just, a slightly rundown copy of Ultron that's running out of batteries. That's kind of yeah, how I interpret exactly. it. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen better days. Well, and you introduced, I've been waiting for writers for years to bring back the character number nine. This is not X-Men related, but I'll just throw it out very briefly. Number nine is a girl who wanted to be beautiful, basically, and had her whole identity rewritten, but then she lost all semblance of herself. And you bring in a lot of characters to explore this concept of feminism with her, from from Ultron, who's a blank slate, to Gorgon, who's the epitome of, like, woman, you are mine. Yes. Uh, And you you have all these different perspectives to explore this character off of. Uh, I loved her portrayal in your run. It's one of my favorite things. Well, it's also very, it's weird because she was, I mean, Typhoid was... Typhoid number nine, these characters were always trying to explore the role of women in comics. And she was um, definitely a commentary on, you know, the the ideal woman. And it's funny that I find that now with social media and, you know, there some of my young friends, I have to say my young friends, but are having problems with their image of beauty on Instagram. Yeah. You know, and the, and the kind of like expectation that their lives have to look so great. And I had a conversation with this one girl where I was like, why don't you just make your Instagram a hundred percent honest? Stop with the pretty, 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 pretty party, 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 happy, happy life. Mm-hmm. Like show everything show when you're miserable and you miss, you know, like, it's it's like a thing that I think that has to happen 
at some point for people to be more honest on social media rather than trying to constantly present this glorious, wonderful, because I think it's just damaging to people that don't have that kind of. So I think number nine, her perfection, and maybe it was trying to play with something like that of what is perfection and how it backfires. So I hope uh, I hope these questions are surprising and not the same. Like, so what was it like to work with Chris Claremont? And what was the hardest? <laughs> like, I think people ask the same questions sometimes. Uh, but I uh, I think your Daredevil run and your your X Men editorship are some of the most impressive things ever. I do want to ask one direct X Men question that I've always wanted okay. to ask you. Uh, one of the weirdest mutants ever to well, not even mutants. One of the weirdest characters to ever join the X Men is Longshot. So Anna Senti yeah. created Longshot in a limited series, and then Claremont brought Longshot into the team, and he's always been like the one guy who never fit for me. Uh, no, tell me about that decision to bring him in, and why does Longshot work with the X-Men? I mean, I think probably because, you know, Chris, Chris was really, really, really fun to work with. I mean, Chris, Chris was like, you know, we talked every day. We went to lunch almost every day. We just, you know, he just spouted a bazillion ideas. And uh, really editing Chris was really easy because it was sort of like he had so many ideas that all you had to do was pick the best out of. He'd throw 10 <laughs> possibilities at you and you'd just go, that one, you know, and then he'd be off and running. And I think that, you know, when when... Art Adams and I were doing Arthur, I guess now he's called, we're doing a long shot. I think that Chris just fell in love with Arthur's work. And he really just wanted Arthur, you know, he wanted mm -hmm. Arthur in his book. And so he, he brought long shot in and then he also fell in love with Mojo and Spiral and he wanted them in the book. So I think it was Chris's way of like, embracing those characters like because he was he had become like a fan of our little thing and then chris and arthur went on to do all those great lots of great stories together and um that was around the time when we all decided to um to do the X babies, which was like <laughs> a big battle. You know, I remember when you had to take care of them in the comic because it was Rita <laughs> who got assigned. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to take care of them. And that was, you know, that's like back in the days when you had to like, you know, kind of run things by uh, the editor in chief. Mostly we were totally left alone. But I think when when um, Jim Shooter got wind of the X babies. He was, you know, justifiably nervous because, you know, it was so silly. And mm -hmm. you do have to, you know, you do have to protect the integrity of your characters. But, you know, it, we knew with Arthur drawing the X babies, it would work. So after Spider Ham, anything was on the table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always felt like I always felt like Mojo and Spiral make such great ex villains, and Longshot should almost be like you know every time they go to the Savage Land, Kesar shows up. It's almost like Longshot would show up every time they go to Mojo World, but it's always weirded me out that he was on the team for so long. Connor, what well, do you think? What do you is, think about Longshot that works? Well, the thing is, you know, it's interesting. Longshot is the one member of the Outback era team that I haven't covered yet on the show, and I do have it scheduled. I'm going to do it at some point this year, um, but. Part of that is because 
figuring out what he represents in the metaphor of the X-Men in the world of the X-Men is a little trickier, right? Because mm. he's not part of their mutant minority group. No. Is allegorically what's being discussed. But I think that much like characters like Candy Southern or Madeline Pryor or Trish Tilby, being in a relationship with a mutant can make your life very calm. There's a great scene around that time where Maddie Pryor says to Havoc, you know, I'm not a mutant. I don't have powers, but because I loved a mutant, I threw my lot in with you guys. And now what happens to you impacts me. And I'm not just going to go sit on my ass and not do anything. I have to do something. And Longshot, because of his sort of inherent naivete and good nature mm. um, and his own history as a slave in Mojo <laughs> World, I mean, is very sympathetic immediately to these people. And then once he falls in love with Dazzler, the rest is kind of history. And then we have I, the Shatterstar of it all after that. Well, yeah, sure. Course. But that's, you know, it's so, and I think that character is great. And, you know, but that's a different that's a different era of the comic. I think the problem with him being a cameo character who pops up in Mojo World is they don't go to Mojo World that much because Mojo World is a tricky setting to work into any story that's not going to just be about hmm. that mass media thing that, yeah. that's, that the Longshot miniseries is about. Um, and I think that Chris did that a lot. You look at, for example, Betsy Braddock, you know, Captain Britain got canceled. He loved those characters. He brought her, he had created her initially when he was working on Captain Britain in the 70s. Yeah. But he brings her into X-Men and decides that she's a mutant, which she hadn't been in Captain Britain. They were just like, your father's from other worlds. And then in, uh, in Excalibur, he brings Captain Britain and Megan into that because he wanted all those characters, those Alan Davis and Alan Moore and Jamie Delano and... Dave Thorpe. And but the, he did the same characters. with Dazzler too, yeah. Exactly. He, he introduced Dazzler in the in Dark Phoenix, but that was Jim Shooter's baby. And once that solo book didn't continue, he brought Dazzler in. I think if he liked a character, I mean, he did it with Carol Danvers. His sure. Carol Danvers book gets canceled, so she becomes binary. She becomes an X-Men character yeah. for a while. I think that that was just when you're writing, when you have that much runway, he was writing that book for 16 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can just do stuff like that. And sometimes it makes a ton of sense. Like Betsy integrated pretty seamlessly because we're used to telepaths being mutants. So that was an easy jump. But a character like Longshot, I like that much like Warlock with the new mutants, he's an alien who relates to their experience and shows mm -hmm. that the mutant question is something that any oppressed person has to grapple with, much like in the real world, you know, I'm a gay Jew, but I feel like I have to be in solidarity with Black people because oppression against Black people is wrong, whether or not it affects me. And yeah. part of that is that I relate, yes. even if I don't understand that experience, to the experience of being oppressed by prejudice. So I think that those characters are useful in the in the context of the X-Men and Longshot is one of the times it really does work for me, I even mean, if it doesn't look like it would at first. One of my problems with Longshot is that maybe he's just too nice. You know, he's kind mm. of like, he's all love. You know, he's just a nice, cute guy. And I think that, you know, me and Arthur Adams came up with him because we were young. You know, we were just, <laughs> we wanted a, we wanted a kind of a happy, kind of a hapless character. And I think what quickly became clear to me is that 
the fun of that book was the the triad of Mojo, Major Domo, and Spiral were yes. wicked. And that horrible. Wicked, wicked, horrible, you know, it's almost like Sartre's no exit. You know, it's mm-hmm. like three three people that like because Major Domo loves Mojo. Mojo loves himself, you know. So it's and Spiral like, hates both of them. So yes. there's like- <laughs> and, and yet they're all like locked together in this yeah. death match of and that's what I find fun. And in, in fact, it's sort of like writing this two-parter long shot thing now. I'm kind of like, it's mostly about Major Domo, Mojo, and Spiral. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, well, yeah, long shot's in there. But it's it's like, you know, he was he, he's something that came out of the spirit of the times of me and Arthur. And do, that does not mean a character works for decades you know why does spider-man work forever and ever and ever in a billion different versions of them you know and you know you'd have to you you know i don't really know why a happy a happy cute long shot just doesn't really seem to have the power to sustain like a long run Mm -hmm. so he pops in and out he pops in and out when you need a character that's just kind of oblivious i think that i think part of it is that he and dazzler are both characters you know we were talking earlier about the sliding time scale and how nobody can age too much right and those are two characters i associate so strongly with the 80s as a decade Yeah. Because of their aesthetics on yeah. some level. Like Longshot doesn't look like himself without that haircut, but that haircut right. looks a little crazy in 2022. Yeah. And at the time, now you can be like, well, he's an alien. They're in a different, but at well, the he time, also, he looked like people you would see on the street. It wasn't a weird way to look. In, but the know, other weird thing about him was that he was supposed to be sort of genderless, androgynous. Mm-hmm. Like, he was definitely, it was, there was definitely like a bit of a David Bowie. Like a yeah. Ziggy Stardust and, thing. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that he was like a spaceman, something from space that was neither male nor female. Mm-hmm. That was a very androgynous thing. And, you know, if I had kept writing long shot stories, I probably would have fooled around with that a lot more, you know, but, you know, it, you're right. It's of its time. And, you know, they tried. Dazzler is a funny one because I remember because Jim Shooter loved Dazzler. He right. might even have created her. I forget. But he uh, did. So he he asked me to try to try a romance book. And that's where Beauty and the Beast came from. Mm-hmm. And I still it was so hard because I was like, these two would never be together. <laughs> it is like well, and you made zero- it about like an illicit drug addled gladiatorial circuit. Yes, it's not because the most it's like, comic ever. if you really if you really know how not to really like, the model, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, if, if you learn how to read between the lines of of care of comic book storytellers, it's like. You can you can kind of see that I didn't really believe in that romance. I didn't think they should even be together. And so I tried to make the comic about everything but the romance. And then every time there's a romantic scene, it's just kind of like suddenly it goes into soap opera land. And it's, you know, because I was like, I don't get this romance, you know. 
Evan Narcisse and I dug into that series on my Dazzler episode. It's just a lot of fun. It's a, it's just a real, it's a hoot. There's nothing just like it. It's a hoot because it's a mess. Because it's bizarre, but it's, it's fully bizarre. bizarre. Yeah. I just reread <laughs> that series. I just reread that series last week for the first time in like 20 years. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a great time. These bizarre characters. We could talk oh, for really? ages and ages. Uh, Annie, I just want to say, I think you're incredible. And I'm super excited about your new work coming out. Seeing your oh, name on books you. again, just like, ah, like it makes me so excited. I, uh, I, I, um, I just got to talk to Anne Nascenti about her Daredevil run. Like that's like a, like a little check in my box above my name now. Aww. I'm really, really excited. Um, with that, let's transition into today's uh, issue review. And, and of course we have a lot to discuss during this as well. Now this is an Avengers issue. I'm gonna cover the Avengers stuff super briefly and we're gonna focus Thank more you. on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants <laughs> content. The, uh, the Avengers have their own long history. So this is Avengers number 49. It's called Mine is the Power. So when we release this episode, it will say, mine is the power featuring N. Nascenti. <laughs> I never get to be in the tagline. I mean, it's oh, fine. Yeah, I can include please. you. Yeah, cool. in the tagline, please. It's just last time it was me and my friend Steve Orlando, who is a genius, wonderful creator. But it was I was like, oh, I'm not in the tagline. I, I can add in the tagline. So normally I have guest hosts and I will list them as guest hosts. But then gotcha. there's like one no, featured it's, guest. I, I'm really it just. Should, it I'm, should be. It should be. And mine is the power featuring my name. And then but the power really Oh, no, no, no. And I would never ask for top billing. I just was like, I'm just giving you shit, Chad. Don't worry about it. No, no, thank you. And uh, I'm, uh, yes, you're, uh, you're wonderful. And I'm a huge fan. And thank you. I'm just, I'm just, I'm really just teasing you. Don't worry. You know, Um, I do do have to say that there's only one page of this comic that really, really interests me. And that is page five. Well, mm-hmm. let's get to page five in just a second. So uh, as we jump there, this issue is by Roy Thomas with pencils by John Buscema. Gorgeous work. Letters by Artie Simek. Uh, let's look at the cover really briefly. We have a great cover with Magneto kind of in the shadows, pulling Quicksilver's puppet strings. Scarlet Witch is like helpless in Quicksilver's arms and rather perky, I might admit, while the Avengers are trying to rush, but it looks like they're too late. What did you guys think of this cover? Was it effective for you? I mean, it's an old-fashioned cover. It looks like a billion other old-fashioned Yeah, covers. it's that pose of there's a lady in my arms and something bad yeah. has happened to her. And, and there's a puppet you know. master and somebody's... I mean, it's... Combining pretty... the lady in your arms and the puppet master is a little bit... Not, those are two covers you see all the time. We've got yeah. both of them here, but, you know, it's not super special. And if the no. lady in your arms is your twin... Well, they always have a weird vibe, though, right? Yeah. That's why in Ultimate Comics they were doing it. And it was like, this is a weird direction. Yeah. But I also wasn't shocked because there is, there's always a weird. And I mean, that's the thing that I really disliked about this issue more than anything else, besides the fact that Magneto is just a crazy fascist because it's before Chris Claremont gets his hands on Magneto. Yeah. The other thing is that because this is way, way before, this is before the Wizard and Miss America were Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch's parents. So it's long before Magneto and his wife were the, but there's all of these moments where Magneto is flirting with Wanda in a Uh way that is really Mm. distasteful when you know. Now, of course, in the modern comics now, she has different parents. It doesn't really matter, but for my whole childhood, certainly he was their dad. And it's very weird to read him calling her like my beautiful one and stuff in a way that is not the way a dad would be like, hey, cute yeah. to his daughter. 
Yeah, it's it's creepy in the early X-Men too. So let me go through pages five, one through five very quickly, and then we'll stop to talk about any relevant parts. So last issue, Hercules went back to Olympus where the Greek gods live, and he discovered that the Promethean flame had been extinguished. Apparently, this is a mystic flame that Zeus keeps, that if someone blows it out, all the gods disappear into another realm. So that's really stupid for Zeus to keep that sitting around Olympus. <laughs> Might want to put it loud. in a box or something. <laughs> yeah. But uh, clean-shaven Hercules, who's looking very fine in his costume here, uh, discovers that the Titan Typhon is responsible for it all. We learn that in Greek legend, there are the Titans who attack Zeus, and Typhon is the... Typhon was uh, not a Titan, though. He's yeah. one of the giants, but it's He's, I, was, I was a classics reader. But it's fine. He, this is this. a Marvel comic. We don't have to... We don't have, no. And he, they this. even say, Her, Heracles, Hercules is even like... Yeah, the one that mortals think has like a million dragon heads. And I'm like, oh, Buscema didn't want to draw a million dragon heads, huh? So he's like, just a guy. Like, we got to throw that line in there. That's funny. Uh, so uh, Hercules despairs as Typhon shows off his goods with a very awkward stance. I'll post an image. He's in a skirt and his lift leg is lifted up on a rock. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Avengers are on the struggle bus very firmly. Uh, Jan, who is looking gorgeous, is sneaking off, sneaking off to make some sandwiches and giant know, man is come on, pissed. give me a break. We got to talk about this dress. It's like a Steranko dress, you mm-hmm. know? And it, I mean, the scene is like kind of terrible in a from a feminist perspective in terms of like, you didn't notice my dress. Oh, but I did notice your dress, you know? And he calls her an adorable little nut. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same <laughs> time, if I were Jan and I walked in in that dress and Hank Kim didn't say boo about it, I'd be pretty pissed because she looks great. But then it's also like, of course, what is she up to? She's she's making sure the boys she's have food. Going to make sandwiches for gonna the boys. Make sandwiches. Yeah. So, you know, it, this is back in the days when, you know, Invisible Girl was invisible in every way. And, mm-hmm. You know, so so but I, I do. I did love this one touch of, of super great design in the yeah. middle of this superhero comic. Yeah, that dress is gorgeous. Uh, yeah, in- Invisible Girl makes herself invisible, and Janet Van Dyne shrinks herself down to yes. smaller sizes. Yeah. <laughs> and Jean uh, is very, very quiet and just moves things yeah. with her mind without speaking. That's sort yeah. of the. And Medusa can attack you with her hair. Well, but at least she's doing something active. You know? Yeah. Jean, Jean, I will say, Roy Thomas's Jean gets more active than the uh, earliest Marvel Girl stuff was, but. So part of the reason that this book would have really appealed to readers, and again, this is the end of a three-parter, but Pietro and Wanda have been in the Avengers for a long time at this point, years. And readers back in the 60s must have constantly just been waiting for Magneto to make an appearance and try to get them back. So there's there's a massive uh, appeal, but we also get to see Magneto back on Earth after all the Stranger stuff, and this sets up all the crazy that follows. Uh, Annie, will you take us through pages six through ten? Kind of just summarize what happens, and we'll, well stop to talk about it. For a yeah, minute. I mean, the, one of the things I was just to go back a second is that I was amazed at how many how much story. I mean, it's there's a framing sequence that takes place in Olympus. And it it does make it feel like um, I know the whole thing is about the they're shattering and are they who's going to stay with the Avengers and who isn't. But it's definitely like a very uh, ambitious to have mm-hmm. those two storylines. Um, yeah, I was going to I was going to note earlier or, or a little later. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, Avengers Disassembled just happening early. The team is breaking yeah. apart. This is the issue where they lose Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. And well, and all the important crack. characters are already gone, not to mm-hmm. be rude. But like if you're thinking about the 60s Avengers, no one who's left is like, I mean, 
Iron Man's not here. Captain America's not here. He's just left. At the Hulk's end of this not issue, here, Thor's not here. Yeah, at the end of this issue, it's literally just Pym, Wasp, and Hawkeye. And, and Hawkeye, right. And Pym's powers are not working. And Pym's powers aren't yeah, working. Yeah. And at this point, I love Jan, but at this point, she really is just making sandwiches and looking fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Not really doing much else. I mean, it, it's interesting that this sequence is about, you know, Magneto tricking everyone. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did feel like, you know, really, they really are just letting themselves get tricked like this. Like, there's a lot of like, well, maybe he means well. He does want to go to the UN, you know, and then he impresses them with this, you know, underground conveyor belt. He's like, here's my conveyor belt. And that was also very dark. Like, <laughs> when I think of conveyor belts, I think of like chicken slaughter and meat. Right. Factory. I think of like Norma Ray trying to get the factory <laughs> workers to unionize, yeah. right? And like, he's like, Welcome to my conveyor belt, you know? And then, you know, he's like trying to convince them that he's, and then, you know, the toad, like the toad is his toady, you know, yeah. it's stuff like that. Would you even be able to do that today? I'm going to have a toady and his name's going to be toady. <laughs> it's a little on the nose. And <laughs> then, you know, and then they get to uh, to the UN and this is the part that I find, I mean, like, this is why, so right before you right before you change, change the conversation, let me just point out very quickly, right from the beginning, Magneto is based off of an island that he raced off of the floor himself. He calls it Island M. We're mm-hmm. seeing it currently in the comics. This is, this is where Scott race. and Lee Forrester will wash up in a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a little bit being a while. But yes. well, but yeah. <laughs> you know the other thing that I love about that when he explains, like, there's a throwaway line that's like, Yes, and it's all powered by solar batteries, atomic energy, and perpetual motion. And I had to pause and think, wait a minute. You know, atomic energy. We still don't have that shit. And and (laughs) perpetual motion? Well, that's the thing is he says he's invented a perpetual motion machine which is better than atomic energy or than solar batteries. Yes, and you're just sort of like, this is like the, the, the... the dialogue is the equivalent of a Kirby machine mm-hmm. where it's just like, if you throw a bunch of words in there, everyone goes, wow, but what does it do? You know, it doesn't matter. And well, the other thing is like, that's the story, right? But it's just a throwaway thing here. And then we have to spend like seven pages at the UN where Magneto delivers a speech wall in thought bubbles telling us, I don't believe any of this, which is yes. very, I mean, it's just, the thing that's interesting about this from a political perspective is after Chris Claremont gets his hands on Magneto, the character, I mean, this character is unrecognizable. Any of the 60s no. stories with Magneto yeah. are pretty much unrecognizable versus the character who starts to exist starting in Uncanny 150. The thing that's interesting here is that he's presented as the kind of minority political activist who is disingenuous, who just wants power for its own sake and is using a posture of this is for civil rights or this is for, uh, you know, a righteous cause to advance himself. And Magneto under Claremont is a man who actually does have a righteous cause, but has a righteous cause. Yeah. But is using perhaps on you know more violent means or underhanded means to accomplish that goal out of necessity here it's really just his ego it's a much less interesting character i think part of why and i think it's it's also you know back in the day like 
you know, e- evil people don't think they're evil. Exactly. And so for him to be saying, you know, for him to be calling himself e- himself evil and is the brotherhood of evil mutants. And it's just so like, it, it really doesn't fit with modern psychology, but even the psychology back then, evil people never called themselves evil. Well, right. You they look don't at the, think they are evil. You look at the 90s, or I guess the late 80s, when Strife is leading his mutant liberation front, and Strife is a character who pretends to care about mutant rights, but doesn't at all. But the way, yeah. and is exactly this, basically. But the way that that's positioned is like, the mutant liberation front is the kind of thing you call your paramilitary terrorist organization. Exactly. Like you don't call it the Brotherhood of Evil. You, no, that's yeah. like silly. Yes. yes. And everything about Magneto and Toad and these characters in this period is pretty silly. But to go back to what Annie brought up at the beginning of the episode, the story in X-Men right now yeah. is what happens if the mutants declare that they have the right to form a sovereign nation, if the mutants declare agency in that way? It's very provocative. It asks mm-hmm. a lot of questions about real situations in the real world. I've talked a lot about that on my show. Some people draw the Israel comparison. I think this is a very different situation and we don't have to get into that. Because here the, the mutants have shown up. I mean, actually, in Al Ewing's uh, issue about Mars, Araco, this past week. X-Men Storm, Red. Yeah. X-Men Red. Storm, in the first issue, Storm is talking to Abigail Brand. Abigail Brand's like, well, the mutants have colonized Mars. And Storm is like, no, I need to stop you right there because like Storm knows colonialism. She's like, we didn't colonize anything. We gave this world life. There was nothing here. We didn't uh-huh. push anybody out. But here it is unquestionable that it would be evil for the mutants to say we should get to have our own place to be. And if you go to even the 90s when Magneto, because this is after Bob Harris decides Magneto needs to be a bad guy again, Magneto returns to this goal. He makes his space station, Avalon, and it's, again, completely unquestionably evil to all the heroes that Mm. these mutants want to be separatists and want to govern themselves and don't want to participate in loving thy neighbor. They just want to be left alone. And so it's just very interesting to see how the metaphor of minority self-determination in these stories has evolved over. Yeah. And also it's, it's the equivalency is kind of xenophobia. You know, it's kind of like, well, we're going to be just be we're just going to be xenophobic. We're going to have our own little place where it's just us and there's going to be nobody else. It's like it it dovetails into some other kinds of territory. Sure. And I think that part of what the current X-Men story is about is about certain characters who are like, yes, and other characters, more heroic characters who are like, well, wait, hold on. You know, we need to make sure we're helping the rest of the world. We need to allow people's human spouses and children to be, you know. So it's an ongoing dialogue about what it means to create a nation for a people who are constantly being hunted or whatever, and how you do that without becoming a monster yourself. Well, and the Um, hunted thing, the hunted thing has always been like, sort of, you could, you could, you could pop that balloon in a second because it's like we're outcasts, but we do happen to have a hell of a lot of power. Sure. And, it's it's know, a we premise to, we have to kind of accept yeah. at a certain point, right? We used to do these stories uh, in the, I, I can't remember an exact story, but 
you know, Chris Claremont, and sometimes I think Wheezy was still, maybe it was when I was Wheezy's sister, we would sit around and go say things like, well, you know what, if I could read your minds, would you want me in the room? And everybody was just horrified. No, no. you know, right. if you, I mean, it's just basically like, you have to deal with the fact that these these are people that you would not want to hang out with. I would not <laughs> want to hang out with someone who could read my mind. I would not want to hang out with someone if they got pissed, they could burn the whole room down. You know what I mean? It's it is like the tricky all, thing about we love the mutants. And we love the X-Men and we want them to be our friends. But who would really hang out with them? I mean, come on. I think that that is again, one of the places where the, it, it just is, this is why fantasy metaphors can never be perfect yeah. allusions to real world yes. difference. But at the same time, it invites a lot of interesting questions. I mean, I was just talking on my show about Brian K. Vaughan did a chamber uh, miniseries like 20 years ago that was about, a, basically is like, should the college have to accept mutant students and the college yeah. the deans and whatnot are concerned because mutants could be dangerous. And there is a mutant power incident that kills some people by accident. And that's what a lot of the story is about because the mutant advocacy group ends up covering it up to try and protect the like it's so it's complicated and it's like who's right and who's wrong obviously the bigots are wrong but like is the safety concern a hundred percent wrong and my guest and I who were talking about it she was like well here's the thing if you look at for example people with mental illness who can potentially be dangerous to themselves or others in certain scenarios can be explosive in that way does that mean they're not entitled to an education because well, yeah because be of risk so, you know, it's, it's the just, metaphor, it lets you ask other questions. The, yeah, the metaphor that would work now is is how easy it is to bring a gun into a school. Well, I mean, sure. that's, that's like a metaphor that would be explored, could be explored in a way that would make sense. Because right now we're all mutants because we can all we can all very easily get a gun and well, be Grant, angry one day. Grant Morrison does a, a story called Riot at Xavier's in the 2000s that is tackles a lot of that stuff and i think oh, it's cool. really brilliant so if we we just did a four part or a four hour <laughs> a two part episode on magneto reviewing his 60 stuff and his prehistory and it gave me a pretty complicated understanding of the character in this issue uh in early x-men as an example we saw stan and jack do a story about sentinels that had so much more resonance than they, than they realized at the time and I feel like what Thomas is doing with Magneto here is somewhat the same. He's really playing off of the mutant theme where mutants are demanding yeah. their own space, but he yeah. seems to be doing it from the perspective of a, a villain who wants power, which is part of Magneto. He is also trying to impress Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch to win their good graces by showing how powerful he is. But this idea of mutants with a nation has been seeded so thoroughly across the ethos now. Modern, yeah. modern retroactive continuity, we have Moira McTaggart implanting that idea in Magneto's brain about a mutation. Um, oh. I don't agree, actually. <laughs> well, in her that's journal- not, That's not how I read House of X at all. Well, in her, in her, there's a journal entry. At the yeah, end he got the idea from Israel. He yeah, didn't get yeah. the idea. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like but you know, there's a funny, there's a funny moment in this cop. I, I really in this uh, comic. I really like how Roy, uh, and uh, just stuck the New York cop in there and had yes. the New York cop get right up in his face. And you know, obviously, if you want to talk about the history of vigilantism, the NYPD. 
<laughs> and NYPD and, you know, defund the police and everything that's going on with police today. Uh, this, this, this shot here where the New York cop just gets right in Magneto's face and sticks his finger in his face, you know, that was, that was a, that was a nice little touch in this comic. Well, yeah, it's also it. the policeman's guns misfiring that causes the whole, pro- yes. you know, it's Magneto who, does, yes. this is the thing that I'm saying about these stories. When Magneto in the 60s, here's my thing. I love that you did a four hour analysis of all of his stuff. I think that sometimes with these fictional characters who are written by different people, and this is something I have to work through on my show since we're doing surveys of a character's publication history, they're just incompatible. They're just not the same person. I don't think that you can make the Magneto of the 60s and the Magneto of the 80s, who is now the Magneto that we know, jive as the same character because Magneto's mutant supremacist stuff here is born out of... Nazism. I mean, like, he's not the Holocaust survivor character that we know because Claremont invented that. Yes. He is someone who sees himself as the Ubermensch and is allegorically oh. the Nazi in this scenario. Yes. So, whereas the X-Men are the allegorical Jews in the scenario, and part of it is, and this is why the Israel stuff in Claremont's run is really interesting, like, speaking as a more leftist Jew myself, yeah. the thing that's interesting is the idea of becoming an oppressor because you've been oppressed and how potentially that can affect other populations. And with the, the way that it, it's framed in the 60s is Charles creates a secret school for mutants in the suburbs where you can't tell anybody you're secretly a mutant. You're doing your stuff at your special school. And we have to make sure that the evil mutants don't embarrass us or cause problems in front of the humans, which to me is much like a lot of the 60s Silver Age stuff, like a very New York Jewish concern. Mm. It's like Magneto is yeah. a Shonda for Right. Yeah. So he's embarrassing us in front of these people. But the way that they push that to its logical extension is by having this allegorical minority character espouse the viewpoints of Hitler, which is basically how the 60s stuff works. And here it's again, anything he says, like on behalf of his people here, we get a thought bubble explaining I am being disingenuous because actually I believe that we are the superior race and I wish to have power. So it's just hard, I think, to read it in a, to gloss it in a way that politically is coherent with the way that the character evolves over time. I mean, mutants as a minority group is not really, like apart from what I'm saying of like, we look like everybody else in this suburb, but there's something different about us, like mm-hmm. sort of Judaism allegory of the 60s stuff. And the Sentinel story, which, as you note, Chad, a lot of the resonance there was not necessarily intentional when Stan and Jack wrote it in the sure. way that it's been adopted since. You know, I, I think that until Chris Claremont, it's actually Moira, the character who comes in and says, they're born this way, it's genetic, and it becomes suddenly a very different story about. Mm being a minority that is, again, by no mistake of your own, suddenly a pariah. Whereas Magneto is someone who is choosing to wage war on the entire world because he is a mutant supremacist. And in the, it's just a very odd, I can't justify it, firstly. 
So we have a lot over the years. Uh, we've got Genosha and we've got Avalon and we've got mm-hmm. Utopia and we've got Newtian, uh, whatever that was called. Uh, we've got this Don't idea about the, it. <laughs> we've got this idea of the mutant nation coming up again and again, including with Krakoa. But let me read Magneto's speech to the United Nations. He storms in, he uses his powers to force himself to the front. Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and Toad are all with him. And he says, first, let me assume the proper place of a homo superior at the front of the chamber, then let all keep silence and listen. Heed my words, all of you. Too long has strife been the only watchword between homo sapiens and homo superior. Today, I come before you to propose that the mutants of the world be given a separate nation of their own with full veto rights in the UN Security Council. Then and only then may there be peace between human and mutant. Uh, And then, of course, right after he's thinking about how great it'll be to have this seat of power for everybody to worship him. But we we see we see seeds, I think, of the character that Claremont crafted later when we take the loftier moment. Part of part of my feeling, Chris is a really nice person. You know, he wants everyone to get along and he wants he loves family and he wants everyone to be at the same slumber party together. So I think that, you know, Chris's tendency was to try to find this something human human inside magneto and you know the impetus for that change came right out of like who chris is i think mm-hmm. and i do i do the idea of like you were saying before the the genetic basis of things i mean i think that resonates today with yeah. the fight that's going on with you know, trans absolutely that culture, you know, and being able to say, Hey, it's, it's a real thing. There's like it's, nothing. It's, yeah. This is just the fact and you shouldn't yes. be oppressing people for something yes. that exactly. I mean, it, it ha- and even, even if they had chosen it, you shouldn't be behaving this way. But and also there is such an overwhelming amount of scientific evidence that this is an innate thing. That this is an innate thing. That exactly. It just becomes absurd. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the mutants is that, Mm -hmm. you know, we can think of the Ubermensch superiority phase of this one and we can think of the let's isolate ourselves and then that becomes a little bit xenophobic and, you know, it's all shaded, but the its root, it's it's you know, the the to, to say it's a genetic, it's a it's a it's a a intrinsic. Yeah, that it's intrinsic is I think why generation after generation after generation relates mm-hmm. to the, the, the music. To this premise, you know? yeah. To this premise, it works. And I think that, it was Chris who identified that and yeah. made it the, the center of the story. The, if you look at, you know, when you say that you see some of the seeds here, Chad, of Claremont's Magneto, yeah. I think that the central thing here is that in this issue as presented by Thomas, it's a front. It's a lie. And yeah. that's yeah. why it's honestly like this, one of many reasons. But it is, I think, insulting to the real Malcolm X when people make the reductive comparison in the 60s. X-Men saying that, oh, clearly like Charles is like MLK and Magneto is like Malcolm X. I think that's a specious comparison. I don't think it's what the creators were were trying to do at the time. But more importantly, if you know anything about Malcolm X and you're going to compare, like Malcolm X believed in 
what he was saying. It was not something, he was not just posturing to advance himself. And if you ask Chris Claremont, who his Magneto was inspired by, he was inspired by Menachem Begin, who was someone who was important to the founding of Israel and was a very hard right-wing, violent kind of guy, but over time started to moderate his position and become less militant and less right-wing. And Chris was interested as, and Chris is someone who, doesn't believe in separatism at all, as Mm -hmm. Annie is sort of identifying. And so for him, what was interesting was saying, who's a separatist character that we can respect, even if this isn't like my political position? And he tried to craft that by pulling Mm -hmm. this character back from Mm -hmm. the hard right wing fascism that he has in the 60s. But you have to just disregard the thought bubbles if you want this to be a character who can logically become the character in the 80s, because everything he says here is disingenuous. So at the very least, Magneto's motivations here are to show Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch that working with the humans is wrong. You shouldn't be with the Avengers. You should be with me. And of course, when he makes his demands at the UN, the humans say no and Magneto immediately lashes out at them. And Connor, wrap up kind of what takes place in the following pages. How does the battle go and end up? He launches a false flag operation. I mean, he he basically, he makes the cops shoot Wanda with his power so that Pietro will say Magneto was right. The humans are bigots and hate us. But again, it's it's fake. It's a setup. It's a fake hate crime. He makes the NYPD shoot a minority that they would never have shot, really. So again, yeah. like, I'm sorry, I don't like this issue at all. This is, <laughs> I don't know if that's come across. Love Jan's dress in that one page. But I think that, again, because the mutants is minority thing hasn't crystallized yet, it's probably yeah. just me reading in hindsight. But there are so many unsavory things about the way that this is presented to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say two things about that. I would say one thing that I always have to come to the defense of my fellow comic book people. Because For sure. The, you have no idea how fast this comic book oh, probably yeah, produced. No. I In mean, like a week. A week it, or, or, or less. I mean, and, you know, as somebody who's made a lot of gaffes in my mm-hmm. the history of my comics and done a lot of embarrassing things. And, you know, I would like to go back and eradicate some of my own stories. It, sure. it Sometimes it's just you're working fast. OK, villain. OK, let's do the mustache twirling evil villain thing. And, you know, you don't really it, it, there wasn't re- necessarily time to think that deeply about this trilogy. And maybe right. it was like done you know really fast and i don't know who the regular artist was but didn't they bring in um john john for just this it went back and forth he's he's in a number of avengers issues back then but it kind of went back and forth between he and a few others so let me let me do just a really super fast summary magneto forces a security guard's gun to go off he then directs the bullet secretly to graze the skull of the Scarlet Witch, which knocks right. her out and ends up affecting her memory. She loses some of her memories, which so is then her to the Brotherhood, which is then the had. impetus for Quicksilver to say Magneto was right all along. Look, we were being reasonable, but the humans turned against us. So that right. when the Avengers arrive, 
Quicksilver helps defeat them. Magneto then takes the twins and leaves. They say, we're leaving with him. We're going to be part of the Brotherhood again. At the end of the issue, we just get a couple of pages of Typhon. More of the Hercules Hercules. and Typhon stuff. Typhon summons a bunch of beasts from the other world and then banishes Hercules there. And of course, that'll pick up next issue, which we won't cover on the podcast because we'll be back into the X-Men books where Magneto then crosses back over with the X-Men, now with Quicksilver Mm -hmm. and Scarlet Witch back on the team. Uh, So lots of really resonant conversations about heady topics, but ultimately uh, I'm getting the impression you guys weren't super fond of this issue. I mean, listen, I, I like Roy Thomas's ear for dialogue. I think there's a lot of like fun exchanges in this. It's just, this is not the kind of Magneto comic I'm interested in reading. <laughs> once yeah, once Chris I- changes the character, going back to read any of this stuff is honestly kind of aggravating to me. And yeah, and I, I think that, it, you know, I always try to in, put things in the context of their times. You know, when mm-hmm. was it written? What was the industry like then? How fast were people working? You know, how much time did they really have to think about? You know, it, it's like there's sort of a more of a luxury now where people really get to think deeply and craft and have metaphor. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I didn't have fun reading it. Let me put it that way. It was sort of a slog. It was like a, I mean, it was a slog until I got to the dress. Yeah. And then I perked up a little bit. And then and the then, next 15 pages were a slog again. Again, it was a slog again, but it was interesting to have thoughts about like, you know, I, I mean, just to just to be clear, I didn't have a thought. Ooh, this is the issue Anne Nascenti needs to read. It was just a matching of dates and availability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and no, this it was is the fine. Issue it cover. was fine. And now I can actually <laughs> say I read a '60s comic. It is '60s, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 1968. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever, you know, other than like I've read, of course, some, uh, you know, of the classics, some like, of the Stan and Jack stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the Stan and Jack and the Ditko Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and I've read like the classics, but I, I. I had I never, never read this one because it's it's like the 60s X-Men is not my wheelhouse to begin with. But the 60s yeah. X-Men popping up in Avengers is very yeah. much not my wheelhouse. Yeah. The uh, the ultimate premise here, we get Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch off of the Avengers and back into the Brotherhood. Doesn't last long, but there is uh, an Avengers X-Men crossover that happened shortly after this back in the mm-hmm. 60s, which is partly why I felt it was necessary to cover these three. No, 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 getting, that makes getting sense Getting back show. to Earth. Absolutely. Yeah, and keeping keeping everything in kind of continuity. Uh, there's a lot of analysis here. There's a lot of really fascinating topics and then the way they show up. Uh, of course, we are analyzing things from a 2022 perspective. We're looking yeah. uh, way back. Into right, I can't expect Roy Thomas to write Magneto as the Magneto I want when the Magneto I want hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I just I just think that this issue illustrates why the 60s Magneto was not that compelling long term. There's a reason he was off with the stranger in space for years because yeah. he was a pretty one note character. Um, And I think that this is interesting mostly as a historical document showing you how odd it reads now to look back at this guy in hindsight when the character we know is the one Chris Fairmont invents that Ian McKellen then plays in those movies and et cetera, et cetera, and has become a really indelible, important character in the genre. But here was just kind of a low rent Dr. Doom. Yeah. Yeah. So as we are wrapping up this conversation, uh, I want to just emphasize the the reason we call this podcast Grey Malkin Lane. So many queer people have been 
kicked out or left behind or forced to leave to start their own spaces and find their own homes, which is one of those themes that uh, as a found family that we find in mutants represented again and again, characters from all over the place who find a home with each other, which is Grey Malkin Lane is the home where the X-Men find that. Uh, Annie, you have over the years, uh, through so much of your editing and your writing, created that home for people to find issues explored in compassionate and intelligent and surprising ways over and over again. Uh, and Connor, you've done a similar thing in a very different way with Cerebro as you've well, built this you. community for people. I No, I really do admire more than anything about your show, the, uh, the importance you give for diverse voices, bringing people in who, uh, who are culturally relevant to the characters that you're exploring and asking big questions uh, I, th I think both of you are so incredibly intelligent and it's uh, it's an honor to just sit and nerd out and philosophize with each of you as we as we go that direction. So thank you for spending this time with me today and for all of the incredible work you're doing again. And you're uh, you're a personal hero of mine. I, I told my husband when we first her, not me, just to be clear, she's well, I just want to say that Connor is is a personal hero of mine. Well, thank you, Annie. I really appreciate that. I'm going to put a feather in my cap for the rest of the day. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, where can people find each of you online? And what uh, do we have to look forward to coming up from any work that you're able to announce, recognizing that this episode will come out uh, in early May? Uh, on on, uh, on Grey Malkin Lane, we have our next interview, uh, or our next episode is going to be The Trial of the Blob, Fred J. Dukes, which is going to be mm. fun. We have a lot to say. Uh, and then right after that, we are covering uh, X-Men number 43 with the writer, Steve Fox, who I am thrilled oh, to Oh, I love Steve. Uh, so, uh, Anne, where can people find you and what do you have coming up? I'm on uh, all social media under Annie Nocenti. Not Anne Nocenti, I'm under Annie Nocenti on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And uh, I'm doing um, the two-part electrotyphoid are both i think the electra the second part came out today uh as we're recording this that, yeah that's both marvel books and then i have a moon knight coming out just a mm -hmm. black and white and red black and white and blood moon knight with it with um stefano Raphael, who is amazing i had really we we take moon knight to the moon and Love that, kind of a, especially right now, because the moon's having the quite moon, a and, it, and it's kind of a there's a character in it that's basically like, you know, the SpaceX dude. Oh, of course. Like, yeah. So it's sort of like, why are we going? So right. that's kind of that story. And then I'm doing two issues of X-Men Legends, X-Men Legends three and four with Javier Pina. I hope yeah, I he's said great. It. And we're doing a long shot mojo, um, major domo spiral, and Kitty mm. and Wolverine are in the issue. So, Fun. Yeah. So that, can you tell that, us? Can you tell us what time period that's set in? Uh, well, so the assignment. It was an assignment, which was what happened to long shot at the end of the. Um, six issues it's between mini. the mini and him joining the x-men is my understanding yes exactly great. that's great. exactly so it's sort of um it covers it's sort of a story about sort of showing you why mojo ended up getting so much of a hate on for the x-men and mm -hmm. uh 
and it's um uh i mean it's it's crazy it's as it's as loony as you can expect for and it's i think july and august are the two issues are coming out I think so. Yeah. I mean, God willing, because obviously the printing delays right now are absolutely insane, but I believe yeah. that's the the solicitation. I'm very excited for that one. I'm also excited for Chris to go back to Mojo World with Rachel, because that's, that's like these, these minis. I didn't never even happened. know that. Yeah. What? He's finally he doing that story. Oh, amazing. Wow. Yeah. Like I think as a one shot or something, but it's another legends that they've kind of, they're teasing. Oh, good. Oh, and uh, I asked him about that at New York Comic Con last year. I was like, can't they just like get you and Rick together in a room again? Rick Lee yeah. and just like do that. And he was like, yeah. I mean, you know, Yeah. but uh, I'm excited. Well, they about are that now. They're I love Rachel. It, I mean, I'm excited by that series because I get to see, you know, Walt Simonson is the, mm-hmm. is the his Thor is what got me hooked on comics to begin with. So mm-hmm. the idea that they're bringing Walt back to do, I think he's doing Beta Ray, Beta Ray Bill, right? Yeah, they're doing a couple different like classic series yeah. like that that are set in the past. Larry Hama's doing a patch mini right now. Yes. It's just cool to see people coming back, you know? It's fun. And I love when, when, when things are announced on Twitter and then a bunch of the messages are, I thought she died. Oh no! <laughs> like, the, like the whole legendary thing turns very quickly into like into she's she still around. Wait, Damn. she's still alive. Well, she's got to be like ninety. You know, I I don't know. I I think she's dead. Fabian so, Nuciesa was joking when he was on my show. He was like X Men Legends. I feel like they should call it X Men Has Beens, but I'm very yeah. flattered. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how we all feel when we're called legends. We're like, oh, yeah, right. You trot out the legend <laughs> in her wheelchair. <laughs> um, Cerebro just wrapped season two with an episode with Zeb Wells on Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Which I'm so excited for. Oh, Hellions. Yeah, it'll be out by the time you're hearing this. Um, and I'm going now on hiatus for a couple weeks, but then Cerebro returns with season three in May with Kieran Gillen, who's coming on to talk about Nathaniel Essex, Mr. Sinister. So mm. I am very, very excited about that. I have a lot of really exciting guests lined up already for, I mean, I'm booked into like September at this point. It's crazy. You know how that is, Chad, now, because mm-hmm. like, you've been scheduling this show. Yeah, um, I'm, booked, I'm booked through the end of July currently. Yeah it, yeah, it it fills up quickly. It fills up real fast. So um, you can find me on, you can find Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can find me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find everything pertaining to the podcast at cerebrocast.com. And uh, I hope you join us. And if you do, I hope you survive the experience. And Chad, thank you again for having me. It was a treat to talk to Annie again. And it was just a treat. Yeah, to always me, fun, so. Connors. Yeah, yeah. Talk to you. I love it. And thank it's you a good so time. much, Chad. <laughs> it was such a pleasure to see you. He asked me, he was like, which one? I was like, I want the one that Annie was sent to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you <know. laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, well, hey, thank you, everybody. We'll see you back next thank time. Thank you. On Gray Malkin Lane. Bye. Everyone, everyone stay safe and happy. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. 
please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement.